Welcome to the Live to 110 podcast. My name is Wendy Myers, and you can find me on liveto110.com. And today we are interviewing Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. Um, her website is drtenpenny.com. Is that correct, Dr. Yes. Sherry? Okay, correct. drtenpenny.com. And we're going to be talking about her favorite subject, which is the dangers of vaccines. And her mission is uh, very clear. It's to educate parents and professionals about problems associated with vaccines, to ensure fully informed consent and awareness about school and travel vaccination exemptions, and to create pressure to stop mandatory vaccination and allow freedom of choice to all. And we're going to talk about some of the hot issues surrounding vaccines today. Um, but first, I have to do our disclaimer. Please keep in mind that this program is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition and is not a substitute for professional medical advice, even though Dr. Ted Penny is a doctor. <laughs> the Live to 110 podcast is solely informational in nature, so please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in any treatment that we suggest on the show. So Dr. Tenpenny um, is an osteopathic medical doctor, board certified in three medical specialties. She is the author of several books, including Saying No to Vaccines and Vaccine Epidemic, How Corporate Greed, Bias Science, and Coercive Government Threaten Our Human Rights, Our Health, and Our Children. Her article about vaccine hazards has been, or her articles have been translated into more than 10 languages. Dr. Tenpenny has appeared on the Dr. Oz Show, in addition to being on guest on hundreds of radio and television programs, and she is a medical correspondent for WHDT-TV with a daily health segment called Common Solutions for Common Health Problems. Dr. Tenpenny is a medical, medical consultant for Parker Hannafin, a Fortune 200 company with 60,000 employees in 48 countries, and she is helping to develop a health-conscious and holistic program for the company's locations in the U.S. and around the world. So, Dr. Tenpenny, when do you sleep? <laughs> You're well, doing so much. much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, this is a very uh, important subject to me because my own daughter was vaccine injured and diagnosed with autism at about uh, you know two and a half years old, roughly. And so, uh, uh, so this is very close to my heart, and I think it's very important to to warn people about the dangers of vaccines and that they do have risks. Um, so first, uh, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and why you've become such an outspoken advocate of the dangers of vaccines? Well, I grew up in a chiropractic family. I come from three generations of chiropractors, where my grandfather, my father, three uncles and two cousins. And so I wasn't vaccinated growing up. Neither were any of my cousins or now their kids or their grandkids. They're not doing any of that. Mm-hmm. And so they really... The vaccine issue was never really on my plate until I started my integrative medicine practice. Um, The first, I would say the first career, first part of my life, my first career was being a board certified emergency room doctor and the director of an ER for 12 years. And then I moved to Cleveland in 1996 and I opened an integrative medicine practice. And now we've had people there from almost all 50 states and from 12 or 14 countries from around the world to get well and get off their medications. In September of 2000, I received a brochure in the mail to attend the National Vaccine Information Center's 
annual or their meeting. And I called them and said, I don't think I can come. When is your next one? And they said, well, we may not ever have another one. So I decided to go to that conference. And while I was there, after four days of listening to MDs and PhDs and scientists and researchers and parents, and there were over 700 people at that meeting and a lot of people with children in wheelchairs and very, um, uh, damaged children that the parents were saying it was come it come from vaccines particularly the pertussis vaccine and i just thought wow how did i miss this you know i've been in conventional medicine since 1985 i've been doing integrative medicine since 1996 it's now 2000 and how did i miss this so i came home and i started a quest to find out were there really problems associated with vaccines and since that time i've put in well over 18,000 hours of my life reading the cdc documents um, articles from conventional medical literature. Um, there's so much, you know, there's so many vaccines. Vaccines are always in development. There's vaccine politics, there's laws, there's rules, there's injuries, there's government, there's all sorts of things in that industry to keep up on and to keep being busy with. And after all of those hours of studying, the conclusions that I've come to, so I tell your listeners that to say that this was a studied opinion. It wasn't just something I got off of conspiratology.com or some parent's website. And to say that vaccines are not safe, they're not effective, they don't protect you, and yes, they absolutely can cause harm. Yeah, so I hear that there are 200 vaccines in the pipeline right now, at least. Um, there are over time. There, there, there are. And I think there's about 20 right now that are in like stage three trials. Most of them are headed towards adolescents and adults. And they're not even for, for, for infections anymore. They're things like a vaccine for high blood pressure and one for periodontal disease and uh, vaccines for OCD and for um, uh, obsessive compulsive disease. And for there's this one that was called Funvax that was going around for a while that was going to target a particular area in your brain for people who were fundamentalists or had too strong of an emotional reaction to either religion or politics. And, and so they're looking at vaccines as being the next wave because as in the pharmaceutical industry and in the drug-based industry, they most of the drugs that are on development now are what they call Me Too drugs, which is another drug for pain or another drug for gastric reflex or another drug for, you know, erectile dysfunction. You know, they're all the same thing. It's just a different brand because they're out of things that they can do. I mean, they've already stuffed so many drugs into us. They're having difficulty. And so the next wave, in fact, in the last four to five years, the, uh, the uh, uh, vaccine arm of the pharmaceutical industry has been the largest growth factor to where it was growing 16 to 18% annualized growth in terms of revenues and what they were doing globally. So that is the next thing that the drug companies are planning to stuff into us is more and more vaccines. We are just a repository of their widgets is really what we are. And symptom-free in the presence of a drug is not health. And I think that that's a really important thing to let people understand. What do you say to what I've written several articles, a couple articles on vaccines, and I get a lot of comments about how the vaccine companies are not making any money on vaccines. And some of them are even saying they're going to have to go out of business if they have to keep producing them. What do you say to that? Because I don't buy that. That seems so far-fetched. Well, it's a, you know, they're predicting it to be a $40 billion industry by 2020. So I guess if you go broke on $40 billion, I guess <laughs> you need a new, a new division manager or something. <laughs> 
So um, and when I started this, it was about a $10 billion industry. But see, I really believe, and I think there's evidence to, to, to support this, that the vaccines are the economic cost drivers of our, of our healthcare system. So we know that a certain percentage of people who receive vaccines are going to have side effects from them. In fact, I would say that probably 90% of people have some sort of side effect, something as simple as a sore arm or maybe a fever or some crankiness for a little while, all the way up to seizure disorders, neurological disorders, reflux, all sorts of GI problems, insulin-dependent diabetes, kidney disease. Um, the list goes on and on and on. So if there's, let's just make a number up here. Let's say out of every hundred kids, children that get vaccinated, that 20 of them have some sort of a side effect that's serious enough that they need to go to a specialist to get more tests. So they have to get an upper GI, a lower GI, an EEG, an MRI, you know, all things. So all of those kids now have added money to the system. And they all get then placed on some sort of medication for their seizure, for their reflux, for their diabetes, for whatever's going on with them. So the, I look at the vaccines in the pharmaceutical industry, if they say they're not making any money, which I don't believe, that they're also almost like the economic loss leader. It's like, come into my store and, uh, and I'll give you a free T-shirt. But while you're there, you're going to spend, you know, $600 on other types of things. Yeah. So the vaccines are kind of the economic driver, the underpinning. And we know this because when you see the large number of unvaccinated children now and you talk to their parents, they say they're never sick. They don't need to go to the doctor. You know, I've got teenagers now that are in their early 20s that were never vaccinated. They've never they've maybe been on one antibiotic their entire life. Yeah. They don't need OT, PT, speech therapy, physical therapy, learn how to chew, swallow. They don't need sensory integration techniques. They don't need any of that. But the vaccinated kids do. So that's the cost driver there that I think is, is really breaking the bank. Yeah, I know. I know my daughter, she's an OT and physical therapy and speech therapy, et cetera. It's, it's four grand a month. I mean, the school she's in and the, the cost of the therapy, et cetera, for after she was diagnosed with autism, I had to act fast and get her in a good school. It's, it's incredibly expensive. It's, yep. it's amazing. And so there's, now there's an N of one. Now take that times the tens of thousands of kids that are now having to go through that. But we didn't see a generation ago. We didn't see it in your generation. We certainly didn't see it in my generation. And now we've got young parents who almost look at those, those services like OT, PT, speech therapy, physical therapy, sensory integration things, food, people, teaching kids how to chew and swallow. It's almost like they think of them as like a normal milestone. Oh, yeah, my kid's in OT and PT. It's like part of growing up now, just like you would say, oh, yeah, I take my kid to soccer or I take my kid to music lessons. You know, we somehow have co-opted even young parents brains into thinking that's now just a normal part of growing up. Yeah. Yeah. And part of it is because there's so many kids that are doing it. Yeah, I know. It's because it becomes normal. And when we see the unvaccinated kids, they're not in any of that or so rare that you can't even count it. Um, and we look at these unvaccinated kids as bright and chipper and, and they have good personalities and they're easy going and easy to get along with. And they, they, we, we look at them like they are just something magical when really that's what normal is supposed to look like. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I was, um, it, it's concerning to me because I know that we know that vaccines have mercury in them or they also have aluminum there's still a handful of vaccines with mercury even though uh, majority of vaccines don't 
Um, but uh, there's another neurotoxin that's in vaccines now that's causing all of, you know, contributing to these health issues that children are having, and that's aluminum. So why is aluminum now in vaccines and what is, what problems is it causing? Well, aluminum has always been in the vaccines and how aluminum is supposed to work as an adjuvant is that when you inject a vaccine that has aluminum in it, aluminum is supposed to hold that vaccine solution in that place in the muscle for a long enough period of time that the white blood cells can go by it and can be sensitized to it enough to create an antibody. And without the aluminum to like make a depot there, um, they, that the solution would just disperse and you would have no antibody effect, which is another whole topic. But that, when you read the science about adjuvants and particularly the science about aluminum in vaccines, they state very clearly, even though we have been using large amount of aluminum in vaccines since the 1920s, when they came out with the first tetanus and pertussis vaccines, they don't know how it works. They don't even know why it's there. They think it does these things like I just described, but they don't really know. And so it's just a very nasty neurotoxin. And I believe that when they started taking the mercury out of the vaccines, they increased the amount of aluminum. And that's the reason that and the number of vaccines that are that are given is why the autism rate and the uh, continued to rise. Now, parents are always concerned about autism and the conventional pediatricians will say there's no connection, even though we know for a fact there is. It's been published in the medical journals about encephalopathy. The vaccine court has actually awarded um, money and compensation for kids who've been injured by vaccines and had autism. We know of at least 12 cases that have been sealed with that. But what parents have to understand is, in my opinion, that is one of just the worst case scenarios about vaccine injury. There's a long list of continuum of asthma, allergies, eczema, ADD, ADHD, insulin-dependent diabetes, a long list of neurological diseases, um, all of those different types of problems, autoimmune conditions that can be induced by all these vaccines. I mean, kids now get 78 vaccine antigens injected into their system by the time they're six months of age. Mm-hmm. And how any parent, first of all, could do that, and second of all, and they and believe the pediatrician who says, oh, they're they're harmless. And sometimes you'll hear this story of saying, well, there just is a tiny little bit of aluminum. How can that be so harmful? That's all you well, need. <laughs> it's all you need. I mean, think about things like arsenic and bee venom and snake bites. I mean, it doesn't take very much of that to kill you yeah. <laughs> in some instances. So the quantity argument is just bogus. It really has no relevance at all. Yeah, I know. For my own daughter with her diagnosis of autism, uh, I started detoxing her. I'd been reading about uh, health issues for years, including autism, and I knew exactly what to to do that I needed to detox her of heavy metals. So I started doing my detox program that I do that I call Mineral Power now. And uh, every hair and mineral analysis, huge amounts of aluminum she's detoxing on every single hair test. Um, and she also had zinc deficiency, which causes autism as well. But um, yeah, it's a, I was I was just blown away by how much aluminum was in her. And she didn't even get that many vaccines. She only had the, I had her on three uh, at six months, three at nine months. I had it on the typical schedule, three at 12 months, and then three at 18 months. And that's when I stopped it, when I knew that she was having some sort of neurological reaction. So uh, the aluminum is definitely a huge problem that I wanted to address today on the show. Um, but what is... 
Um, so what about measles? Like there's a, a, all these outbreaks in the media about measles and mumps. And uh, this uh, tends to send people panicking, running to their pediatrician to get vaccinations. So what what is going on um, with these outbreaks and why should we not be so concerned about them? If measles was such a deadly, horrible, disastrous disease, there wouldn't be anybody around over the age of 50. Yeah. We all had it growing up. We all had it at an, at an appropriate age. And when you go backwards in time and you read information from the older medical journals, the one that always sticks out in my mind about measles in specific was a 1940 issue of the Southern Medical Journal that talked about the symbiotic relationship between that virus and good health in human beings. And they actually had children who had a condition called nephrotic syndrome, which is where their kidneys leak protein. And the protein, it causes lots of harm, not only to the kidneys, but to their life because they're losing all all the protein from their blood. And in order to seal those basement membranes and make the um, nephrotic syndrome go away, they would induce measles in these kids. Mm-hmm. And it w- they would have a high fever and that high fever would seal up those ba- those basement membranes. And that's always one, that's one of several that it's like we are supposed to have these illnesses as we grow up because it teaches our immune system to recognize the difference between self and non-self, what's foreign, what's us. And these high fevers that come along when you're about nine months or nine years of age locks in that immune system that you use both arms of the immune system. Um, the, the immune system has two sides. One is called TH1 and t- the other is TH2. And they need to dance and work together to figure out a way to, to um, keep you from getting uh, measles again and to have this long-term immunity. Well, vaccination is not long-term. It's, it's artificially induced it goes away. The, the antibodies go away because they're artificially induced. And I believe that the antibodies do not protect you from a vaccine. And the vaccine induced antibodies are simply a marker of contamination. And when you talk about these big epidemics, I mean, I don't really think 300 people out of 330 million is an epidemic. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, they never talk about any of these 330 kids that have a fever, a cough, and a rash. Oh, my gosh. Not that. And so parents need to look at what is really the illness about, and can we treat them with chicken noodle soup and with high-dose vitamin C and with vitamin A and keeping them home from school for a few days. And that's the biggest thing. We have these parents now who think that OTPT and speech therapy is normal milestones. And, oh, my gosh, my kid can never get sick. Oh, it would just be a travesty if they had a fever. Yeah, that's how and, my husband is. <laughs> loses his mind. I think that's you have to be sick. You have to get sick to have a healthy immune system. Exactly. And, and getting sick at the appropriate childhood ages, I think that's one of the reasons why me and a lot of all my cousins who none of us were vaccinated and we all had those illnesses. You know, we're all in our 50s and 60s now. Nobody's on any prescription medications. Nobody has any long-term disabilities. Their kids are the same thing. I mean, when you allow the immune system and you allow the, the symbiotic relationship we have with the environment to work, then as you get older, health is an inside-out phenomenon. It comes from the inside. We swim in bugs every day. I mean, if you have a dog or a cat or a, a cow or a horse and you go to the barn, I mean, just think of how much you're, you're um, surrounded by viruses and bacteria and you get it in your mouth and it's on your food and, oh, my goodness, we should all be just be keeling over dead at any minute, yeah. unless, of course, we're vaccinated. 
Yeah. And that's one thing that um, I really try to get the message out to people is that vaccines cause chronic immune system dysregulation because so they yep. they prompt or stimulate the immune system in an improper way. You know, like you said, we have two sides of our immune system, the cell mediated and the humoral. And, uh, you know, I just don't think people are making that connection between poor health and diseases like autoimmune and cancer in adulthood to the vaccines they received as a child or even as an adult. And can you explain this very real risk to the listeners? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, you know, when you get sick, when you actually have like measles, mumps, rubella, the flu, <laughs> you know, it's it gets into your system through your respiratory tract. It gets past your respiratory tract, past your lymphatics, past your gut and into your immune, into your bloodstream. And then the blood, the feet, and then that's recognized as a foreign invader. And that for the reason that's the reason you get fever is because we've got to burn this thing out of here because that's how we get rid of it is because it does doesn't live, it lives at 98.6, but it doesn't live at 103 degrees with the fever. So that's part. And then we send out these messenger molecules and all of these different things to create a, a, a reaction to clean out this invader. And so if you don't do that, if you don't have an opportunity to clean out invaders, if you have things injected into your system, a foreign matter inject, injected into your system that your body doesn't even mount a fever or do anything with, and now they're even telling parents to give your kids a dose of Tylenol before you bring them to the office to get their vaccine so they don't get a fever and be a little bit uncomfortable. Oh my gosh, we can't stand that if our kids have a little dis discomfort. And then the other things that are in the vaccines, I mean, there's foreign stray viruses. I mean, these vaccines are made from animal cells, from chicken and cow and dog and uh, monkey cells. And we have these foreign uh, viruses that were in those cultures that are getting injected into the system. And I've done several talks and written a couple of scientific papers about these stray viruses that they know that are there and the risk of developing cancer down the road from these viruses that come from vaccines. They get incorporated into the human DNA. We are actually destroying human DNA by our big fear of a fever, a rash, a cough, and some diarrhea. Yeah. So what do you say to people that say that vaccines have prevented all these diseases, that um, without vaccinations, we would still have smallpox and all these other horrible diseases that did kill a lot of people? What do you say to them? Well, first of all, with smallpox, it is estimated that less than 10% of the global population was even vaccinated. It went away because of hygiene. The same thing with polio. Polio was the, the graph of the polio was way on the way out before the vaccine was even invented. And, when, and polio is not a synonym for paralysis. And that's another thing that we've come to be um, indoctrinated about. That if you get exposed to polio, the polio virus, you will definitely get paralysis and be paralyzed for life. When the truth is, is that 98% of people who get exposed to the polio virus actually have what looks like the stomach flu and it just goes away. And I would like to say to people, look at, we have never, the CDC has never put up the money to do a vaccinated versus unvaccinated population study. And I would like for them to prove that it really was the vaccines that made some of these illnesses go away. Or was it a change in our environment, change in hygiene, change in refrigeration, change in a lot of different things? You, you know, you can't prove a negative. So if somebody gets a flu shot and does not get the flu, is it because of the flu shot? Is it because they weren't exposed? 
Is it because their immune system is healthier enough to make it go away? Because we know, we know statistically, if we're an absolute fact, because I've done the numbers, that the viruses in the flu shot only match the viruses in circulation 16% of the time. So you can get a flu shot and still get the flu because it does nothing for you. And so the, if that's the truth about the flu, that you can get a flu shot and still get the flu, or you get a flu shot, and if you don't get the flu, you can't prove it was because of the flu shot. So you can say the same thing about pertussis, Hib, measles, mumps, rubella, even tetanus, because the CDC's data shows that you that that they they put out a report on tetanus about every two years, and of that report, sixteen percent, around sixteen to twenty percent of people who contracted full blown tetanus, which is not uniformly fatal, it's a bad infection. You want to avoid it if you can, mostly by cleaning out the wound very well, but sixteen percent or more of the people that got full blown tetanus had four or more tetanus shots. Hmm, wow. So what does that prove that that tetanus shot did? If you can get all of that, take on the potential of the neurological and the cardiovascular complications and still get tetanus anyways. So why do you think the CDC is not doing controlled studies like that? They don't want to know. Why would they want to know that their poisoning people is making them much sicker than the parents who choose to fight the system and not poison their kids? Yeah. Why would they want to know that? The yeah. entire system would implode in a heartbeat yeah. if they did this huge study, well-controlled, well-designed, and just looked at things like missed days from school, number of doctor's visits, number of daily chronic medications, are they getting any ancillary services, things that were very cut and dry. You know, if you're a, have an unvaccinated child, do they get PT, OT, speech therapy? No. Do the vaccinated kids, what percentage of them do? Things that you that are very cut and dry and would not be subject to things like um, uh, richer families versus poor, poorer families. You know, it wouldn't have any income structure. They couldn't really say it was because of the food they were eating. Very, very strictly done. Why would they want to know that? What if 80% of the vaccinated kids had all of these things? They were on daily chronic medicines, blah, blah, blah. And 80% of the unvaccinated kids had none of them. Yeah. Where would that put that industry? And since the CDC is driven and the FDA is driven by the pharmaceutical industry and the revolving door of people who go to from the government to big paying jobs in the industry, why would they want to shoot their partner in the head? <laughs> it just it never it just blows my mind how in our in the United States and our government, we can have that revolving door between the government, Monsanto, the government, the FDA, the government, Big Pharma, so that they have just completely infiltrated and it's all about money and they control our government and our laws and ultimately our health. It just uh, just makes me sick. Um, so another common complaint um, that I hear amongst mothers is uh, when I've tried to talk to some others about, you know, you know, maybe you might reconsider vaccination, you know, look at what happened to my daughter and people have, they're so ingrained, so indoctrinated, believe so wholeheartedly in vaccinations <laughs> that they even feel that if their child plays with another child that hasn't been vaccinated, that they're putting their child at risk. Um, I have a, I go to a, I had a girlfriend that she did a mother's circle, um, you know, about 40 mothers and I would bring my daughter and, um, I would hear other mothers like they don't want other, they don't want unvaccinated children playing because they're worried about their child being put at risk. <laughs> what do you say to that? 
I mean, I, I would always look at them and say, did you just hear what you just said? I mean, just think about what you just said. You believe in vaccines, you think vaccines work, and they keep your kids from getting sick. So the person who should be concerned would be the unvaccinated parent, right? Or the parent with the unvaccinated kids. So if your kids are vaccinated and you think they work and they protect you, what are you concerned about? I mean, yeah. do you and just put it like right in their face yeah. of, did, did you hear what you just said and how silly that is? It's really silly. Yeah, I mean, this is a big concern. I mean, people, uh, mothers and, and people in general have just been led to believe that the vaccines do do improve their child's health, that it does protect them. And so um, so I guess that's just one of the most common uh, common fears that I hear from people is that um, that their child is at risk if they play with unvaccinated children. So what about conversely? Is there a risk if your child is vaccinated and they play with my unvaccinated child? Is there, I've heard some things uh, in that regard as well. There are some greater risks from that particularly with the chickenpox vaccine, because the chickenpox vaccine is a live virus. And statistically, they've reported over the years that about 3% of unvaccinated kids uh, or immunosuppressed kids, if they're around a child that has just recently had a chickenpox vaccine or a grandparent that's had a shingle shot, that those viruses shed and that they can contract chickenpox. So vaccine-induced chickenpox um, that chickenpox vaccine induced chickenpox is a real thing. There's a theoretical risk for rubella and for measles. They're not really sure because, but those are live virus vaccines also. So there's a, a theoretical risk, but not statistically significant. But it really does happen with the chickenpox vaccine and the shingles vaccine. That's really interesting because I've, I've had that question floating around my mind for some time. <laughs> So can you voice your concerns about mandatory vaccines? Um, because I hear I, I hear of health workers that are threatened with their job, basically under the table, um, if they don't submit to the flu shot. So who is funding and attempting to pass these mandatory vaccination laws? And are mandatory vaccination laws a possibility in the near future? You know, that's a good question. I'm, I would suspect that the vaccine lobbyists are the people who are funding this pressure um, in the in the hospital systems? Um, I don't know who is who's behind it, but you can kind of just follow the money and figure it out. You know, the um, the U.S. government is the largest purchaser of vaccines in the world. They produce they they pr purchase more vaccines than anybody, which again goes to what we were talking about with the CDC and the FDA and the revolving door, right? But they so they produce they purchase. 70 million to 80 million doses of, of flu shots each year. And there is a, 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 a plethora of information in the, in that, in the conventional medical literature that says the flu shots don't work. And me getting a flu shot doesn't keep you from getting sick. <laughs> you know? And so I said, once this started, I saw this coming about five or six years ago that they were heading in this direction because they were filling up. What they do is they fill up these kind of obscure journals like the public health journals, excuse me, and all these things with these articles. And then when they get ready to like pounce out with these new laws, it's like, well, see, it's already been published. 
But nobody's read it and nobody's had it really challenged it. So about six or seven years ago, when I, they started pushing this thing towards mandatory flu shots for healthcare workers, I said, you know, we're headed down a really, really slippery slope here. That if we are requiring people to be injected with a substance against their will that could really seriously harm them, in some cases even kill them, they could get Guillain-Barre syndrome, they can get brachial plexitis, they can get a, you know, inflammation of the brain. They can have all kinds of problems. And we are mandatorily requiring that in exchange for a paycheck and for a W-2 worker, we're headed down a really slippery slope. What's next? You're having a bad day. You have to take your mandatory Prozac. Um, Are we wanting to make sure that, you know, these other things are going to come into line? For example, now they're talking about with nurses, mandatory repeated MMR vaccines they're talking about all of the healthcare workers should be getting pertussis vaccines. They're giving pertussis vaccines to pregnant mothers or right after they deliver so that you're giving pertussis vaccines to the mother and the father. I mean, it's just, it's like it's out of control. It's like we just have to inoculate everybody with these substances just because we believe that this is the right thing. And it really isn't. Yeah. And speaking about in utero, um, I had to, I always kind of think back when, uh, if, Perhaps my getting a vaccine when I was pregnant with my daughter perhaps could have contributed to her autism later. And um, I was really against getting vaccines when I was pregnant, but my pediatrician, you know, was like, there's an H1N1 scare and was reading me all these statistics. And, you know, if you get the flu when you're pregnant, it's really dangerous. So I actually got the flu vaccine and the H1N1 flu vaccine at the same time. Does that contribute to uh, poor health in in children? And can that lead to autism and other diseases down the road? Well, you know, it's forever. We always talked about pregnant mothers can't, shouldn't take anything like even an aspirin. Right. And if you had a cold or a flu, you know, take some vitamin C because you can't take NyQuil or you can't take Benadryl or any of those things because it might affect the baby. But now injecting mothers with all of these things, is not a big deal. In fact, it's probably good for the baby. You know, I was at the conference. This was in 2004. It was the first international neonatal vaccination conference. I was there. I took time off from work and paid my own money to go to this conference in Washington, D.C. And I was sitting in the room when they were talking about how were they going to convince mothers to take a flu shot. And if they did that, were they somehow going to have to have the VAERS database and the vaccine injury compensation program be uh, protect not only the mother, but the fetus if there was an adverse outcome? And how could they politically maneuver that and convince the OBs that they should be given these mothers these flu shots when OBs forever, like I said, was like, you can't don't take anything. I'm sorry, you can't. Yeah. So this has been a a methodical co-opting of the medical profession for commerce for a long time. And that was in 2004 when that, and and I saw this coming at that point in time that this is what they were going to be doing. And it's, and they were talking about developing an RSV vaccine. 
well, those for premature babies. And they're saying, well, I don't know how we're ever going to get parents to give their children this RSV vaccine because it has a very low mortality. Kids don't buy from it, die from it, but it has a high morbidity, meaning that when you have a little bitty baby that's just a few weeks old and they have this cough and they have RSV, they, they're hospitalized. So there's a cost involved with that. So it's like, how can we convince these parents to give their kids a $3,000 shot to keep them from going in the hospital? I mean, it's all about money. It's all they, and I, I remember I got up to the microphone during that conference. It was like when they got to the question and answer period. And, and I said, you know, you talk about these are people's children, their most precious thing in their world that they give birth to. And you're, you're showing us all these graphs and talking about data points. Well, every one of those data points is a baby. Yeah. And what you're talking about in terms of risk and all these stratification of risk and all this stuff is just despicable. Yeah. And it's such a conflict of interest, too, because half of a pediatrician's income is doing vaccinations. Now, the pediatricians make their money by well baby checks. And why do we have well baby checks at two, four and six months? It was set up for doctor convenience. And that's the way your insurance pays for it. it has nothing to do with the health of your child. And, uh, and parents know whether their kids are sick. And that's another thing that we have had their parents' brains have been stolen by the industry to think that they have got to take their kid in to the doctor for the doctor to tell them that their kid's okay. I mean, really? Yeah. I just down <laughs> I mean, really? I mean, for 30,000 years, parents, mothers have been raising children. They kind of know when their kids are okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I stopped going to the wellness checks. I thought, Good what is you. the point of this? Exactly. Just, at, at the 18 month point, I was like, I'm done. Like, this is ridiculous. So all it is is an opportunity kid. to vaccinate. That's yeah. all a well baby check is. Yeah. And in a, a, a period of time, they don't talk to you about what normal growth milestones look like, when you should introduce certain foods, what about water, what about different kinds of water, what can you tell me about these different formulas, is there something I should know as a parent? They don't talk about anything of, in, in terms of health. It's just like weigh your kid measure them, head circumference, how long are they? Are they growing weight? Great. And the nurse comes in with five vaccines. Yeah. Yeah. And so what do you think about preservative free vaccines? Um, because my pediatrician, she's a really nice pediatrician, like an upper scale one, blah, 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 blah. And so she offers the uh, a preservative free um, to, you know, obviously. Uh -huh. All it means is it doesn't have mercury in it. That's all it means. Yeah. There's nothing magical about that. It's a marketing ploy. And I always tell parents, I don't care if you think your pediatrician is second only to God and how nice and wonderful and charming they are and playful and personality wise. I don't, I don't care. I don't care if they'd be somebody you'd invite over for Christmas, go to dinner with. They are still poisoning children and destroying the DNA of the human race for a living. Yeah. And somebody died and suddenly made me health czar. Yeah. <laughs> I would round them all up. All, every single pediatrician, and I would make them relearn pediatric immunology and relearn um, everything about normal growth and development, and they would have to take a test on it, and they would be forced to read the VAERS database. Yeah. Just sit and read those heartbreaking stories of these vaccine-injured kids so that they could think um, – might be mindful about what they do with their job and what they do with these children. They're not just little play things. 
They are developing human beings. And when you really look at the developmental things of what it takes to develop a nerve cell or develop a muscle cell in the body and the complexities that have to happen with all these individual enzymes and these growth things that happen. And in the middle of that, you toss in a whole bunch of chemicals and think that that's supposed to be benign. I would make, and they would have to pass a test or they couldn't practice medicine. Yeah. Yeah. I actually asked they never learned any of that. Yeah, I know. I feel like a lot of them are just parroting what they learned in medical school, but the medical schools are controlled by big pharma. So I feel like a lot of them go into medical school wanting to help people, but they end up just parroting what they learn, what they learn. You know? Exactly. So, and, and many people, you know, many people in different practices don't go beyond their education. They're not curious. They don't continue to learn outside. And I think that's probably one of the bigger problems. But, um, but I know I asked my pediatrician actually to come on my podcast and talk about some of the dangers of vaccines. And she's like, I can't, that's a conflict of interest. Um, you know, she just, she couldn't do it. <laughs> interest. Yeah. Well, people that's, that's really, that's, that's really sad. I mean, you could invite a orthopedic surgeon on and could talk about the potential complications of a knee replacement or a hip replacement, yeah. even though they do them, there is, they say, well, this could happen. This could happen. You don't want to give a, have a knee replacement before a certain age because they only last for so long. There's no conflict of interest there. The problem is that she doesn't know. She didn't know the answer. And she's probably well aware that you know more than she does. <laughs> yeah. And also, you know, that's her income. So she can't be disparaging the way that she makes money. So I still have not found a new pediatrician. <laughs> I haven't been taking my daughter to the doctor, but I do need to find a more holistic pediatrician. Um, but I just haven't gotten around to it. So um, so I have a question I like to ask all of my guests. Um, what do you think is the most pressing health issue in the world today? Hmm. The most pressing health issue, I think obesity because obesity is starting now with children at such a young age. I mean, we're seeing some of these kids that are born that are 16, 17 pounds at birth. I mean, it's like giving birth to a toddler. Yeah. And um, I think that obesity and childhood obesity and adult obesity is such a, 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 a driver to all of these other conditions, heart disease, musculoskeletal diseases, diabetes. And I think, you know, that, Coupled with, you know, of course, I would say that I think one of the biggest health issues is, is all of these vaccines that are, that kids are getting nowadays, because again, that's an economic health driver. And I don't believe that any emphasis in our, in our medical system as it is currently structured is looking at health. It's all about disease. And so we're never going to get ahead of the curve. And when they're talking about by the year 2025, that 35 to 40 percent of our GDP is going to be spent on health care, which in itself is an oxymoron because it's not about health care. I mean, symptom free in the presence of medications is not health. Yeah. And giving people in Obamacare, when they talk about giving people access, all they're saying is go to the doctor so you can get your drugs. They're not t- providing services for nutrition or giving a health credit for going to the gym or keeping your ideal body weight or not smoking. There's none of that. It's all about access to more drugs. Yeah. So we've got the entire system is so broken. It's so broken that I, I just don't think there's any hope for it. That's why I started live to 110.com because I wanted to help to educate people. There are alternatives. You can heal your body without medications and 
you know, toss them in the garbage. There's other ways to heal your body and address the actual underlying causes of yep. the disease, which medications just cover up symptoms. Um, but I had another question. Um, say, for instance, you travel to India, right, where there's a lot of disease going on, um, or another country where they have, uh, you know, polio is still rampant or other diseases are still rampant. Um, would you ever recommend vaccinations in an extreme case like that if you're visiting a country where there's a high risk of contracting these diseases that are controlled in the U.S.? No. no. Health is an inside-out phenomenon, right? And that you need to keep yourself healthy in the presence of pathogens. Because just because you're exposed to a pathogen does not mean you're going to contract the illness if you have an inside healthy system. And homeoprophylaxis really does work, you know, using homeopathy to boost the the cellular immunity side of your system, the Th1 side of the equation, which is what keeps you healthy in the presence of pathogens. So using homeopathy to boost your immune system when you travel. I mean, travel vaccines comes up a lot. I get that question a lot. And because... With the sole exception of yellow fever vaccines in certain countries of the world, not in all of them, but in certain countries, all of the rest of the travel vaccines are recommended. They are not required. And I, quite frankly, I know that so, a lot of people like to go on mission trips and they want to you know, serve their church and serve God by going on mission trips. But by requiring them to be injected with things that could leave them with long-term disabilities in exchange for that, somehow there's like an oxymoron in there that's not right. Yeah. <laughs> and so I would not, the only, um, I, I wouldn't recommend any of those. Yeah. I just wouldn't. Okay. So why don't we talk about your book, Saying No to Vaccines? Can you talk a little bit about that and why you wrote it? Well, the subtitle on the book is the, the, the book's title, as you said, is Saying No to Vaccines. But the subtitle on the book is Refuting the 25 Most Common Reasons to Vaccinate. And so you don't have to read the book like from page one to the end straight through. You can actually go to the table of contents and skim down the 25 reasons that you're arguing with your mother-in-law or your husband about. Mm -hmm. And you can go right to that argument and how I defended that, you know, the side of that. And I've embedded right there the reference, the medical reference to the journal articles that show you from conventional medical literature why this argument is sustainable. And so, and interestingly enough, I'm, I'm, I'm right now in the process of having a new website built, a new drtenpenny.com website that will probably be out, will probably be on a beta release sometime after the 4th of July. Okay. And there's going to be a membership area on the website. In the members area, I'm going to have, over time, we're going to start with probably 10 um, videos. And the videos are going to be anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes and they're going to be a PowerPoint presentation with a voiceover, and it's going to be very targeted, specific information. So if you want to just go get a 15-minute video on what are the side effects of the hepatitis B vaccine, you can go and do that instead of listening to three hours and hope that you hear what you're going to hear. Yeah. And I was going to rewrite the book and, and um, put it into just update it because it came out in 2008. I was going to update it. But I've decided instead, because of the way technology is, I'm going to go with a, a series of little ebooks. 
So you can just get that specific information that you're looking for because everybody's time is so packed now with information and have to do's and, you know, these big lives that we have. So I want to break everything down into much more bite-sized little, little, little pieces. And a lot of that's going to be in the membership area of the website. And we're going to have a really active blog and interacting and lots of videos and things like that. So I'm really excited about this new website area because I think we can have a lot more interaction a lot more interface and really specific information for people. I think that's great because when I first got pregnant and I started researching the vaccine issue, um, I just couldn't find good information. Um, I just kept, when you search online for risks of vaccines, you come to all different kinds of websites that I think are run by big pharma saying that they're safe and et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I still felt like, well, maybe I should still vaccinate. And then when my daughter got injured, then I started to address the issue again. And it's hard to find information. And the, the books are this thick and they're overwhelming yeah, and you, exactly. you buy it and then it sits on the shelf. And so I think that's a really, I think that's an amazing idea. And I think when it, your website is the resource to go to, to learn about the, the problems with the vaccines, because, um, there's just, there's not enough good information out there. And I think your website's a great resource. It's very concise and you address all the different arguments, which I like because that's the key. Um, people need to have their specific argument addressed. And so I love that idea that you're doing the little sn snippet videos. Yeah, little because people, you know, they want specific information. They're, they're having a debate with somebody, you know, their husband, their sister-in-law, who's an RN, you know, I mean, whoever they're having or they're going to play days. And, and like the question that you said, how do I respond to the people who say, um, I don't want your unvaccinated kid playing in my play group? Yeah. And so they want that specific language and that's, and they want it in, you know, we're so used to YouTube these days and little sound bites of things. They want it in a 15 minute or less little sound bite so they can get it and move on to the next thing. And that's just the way that we are. And so I'm redesigning everything to go into that direction and give people really specific information with footnotes to references to the medical literature so they can say it's not just Sherry's, Dr. Sherry's opinion, my opinion came from reading this information. Yeah. That's the other thing that we have is the vaccine research library, which is for the people who are really into this. And I've put together, it's uh, vaccineresearchlibrary.com. And there's more than 6,000 articles in there from the medical literature showing the problems associated with vaccines. And it's all categorized by, you can just look up measles, rubella, pertussis, and you can find all of these problems that have been documented. It's out there if you just know to look for it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Sherry. Thank you for your contribution to help to educate. I know uh, about the dangers of vaccines. I know it's an uphill battle. <laughs> you have so many people, and I, I just implore the mothers out there who are considering getting pregnant or having children or are pregnant um, to really uh, not do what I did and to just automatically think that you already know about the vaccine issue, to just think because there's this collective unconscious of uh, that vaccines are healthy and they're required for health that to look into the issue and research a little bit more because I think you'll be unpleasantly surprised and have a lot of common misconceptions uh, blown apart if you research it just dig a little bit deeper and don't right. don't listen to your doctor don't don't ever blindly listen to your physician we today in our society today we have to think for ourselves and take responsibility for our health Absolutely. So, thank you so much, Dr. 
Dr. Tenpenny. It was, it was amazing having you on the show. Thank okay, you. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. And everyone, if you want to learn all about detoxification, the modern paleo diet, and how to heal your health conditions naturally, go look at my site, liveto110.com, and it recently got a facelift as well. But isn't it fun, Dr. Tenpenny, to redo your whole website? Oh, <laughs> it takes so long. Is it fun? <laughs> well, I don't know. I, you know, begin with the end in mind, and then maybe you'll think it's yes. fun. <laughs> it, took, it took me five months to redo the site. It was, oh. uh, Good for you. Nightmare, but it's nice and sparkly and pretty now. So you can go look at that. You can take a look at my Modern Paleo Cooking Show on YouTube at Wendy Live to 110. It's also on the new site. And thank you so much for listening to the Live to 110 podcast.